This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. For some Bible readers, the scriptures seem to be bits of unrelated material. For those who memorize scripture from flashcards, to be sure, a good thing to do, scripture can seem disconnected. Others read scripture as if it were entirely united around God's temporary national people, Israel. Still others put us, the reader, at the center of scripture. There is another way to read the Bible. There's good indication in Scripture itself that our Lord Jesus read Scripture in this way. He told us so in Luke 24 and in John chapter 8, to name just two places. The Apostle Paul says that all the Scriptures are yes and amen in Christ. The book of Hebrews says that all the believers who lived before Christ were looking forward to him and to his kingdom and to a city whose builder and maker is God. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Dennis Johnson is professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's been a pastor since 1973, and he's taught here since 1982. He's author of several books, most recently, Walking with Jesus Through His Word. This new book, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. First question, why another book on how to read the Bible? When my book on preaching Christ from all the scripture came out in 2007, Him We Proclaim, I began to get some requests from pastors and others uh, to teach church members and uh, opportunities to teach uh, leaders in the developing world how to read scripture from the standpoint of Christ's fulfillment of the whole Bible. So, I started to teach it. I had an opportunity to teach at a church in Roanoke, uh, some family conferences and other churches. My own congregation invited me. Then I had an opportunity to teach pastors in Tanzania and later on in Mexico. And I thought it would be helpful to have a book that takes some of what I did in Him We Proclaim, but sort of eliminates the footnotes and elaborates a little bit more on a strategy for reading scripture that doesn't necessarily depend on having lots and lots and lots of resources, but mainly a way of looking at the Bible that we learn from the Bible, and especially from the way Jesus taught his disciples to read scripture. So this is not a technical book. It's not a book that requires one to have gone to seminary to be a pastor or a scholar to understand it. That's right. I quite deliberately minimized the footnotes to almost none and really just want to explain it in a very clear way, what we see arising out of the Bible itself. In our age, which I take as a skeptical age, where we see oftentimes in our culture order as artificial, our impulse is to deconstruct. But you write that the apostles, and you use the adverb confidently, connected Old Testament scriptures to the suffering of Christ. So here's the question. How can or how could a one-volume library of 66 books written over 1,500 years in three different languages have a unified message? Aren't you imposing on scripture a grid taken from outside of scripture? Actually, what I'm trying to do is 
do justice to what Scripture claims about itself, and that is that it is, through all of those human authors, over all those generations, in all those different languages and genres, it is ultimately the word of the living God who is the creator and the sovereign Lord of all of history. If it's not that, then any connections we make between Old Testament books and New Testament books or passages or events is really a matter of our own inventive imagination. But if, in fact, the Bible is what it claims to be, God himself speaking about God's own actions in creation, redemption, in real history, the God who can orchestrate it all perfectly— then we need to take that seriously, because that's what the Bible claims to be. That's the way Jesus read the Bible. And if we take Jesus seriously as the eternal Son, second person of the Trinity, come in human flesh to reveal the Father to us and to reconcile us to the Father, we just need to follow the lead that the Bible itself gives us. We're talking with Dennis Johnson about his brand new book, Walking with Jesus Through the Word. Is there a non-theological way of reading Scripture? Sometimes I get the impression that people think, well, I'm just going to read the Bible as if no one's ever read it before or read it in isolation. Is that possible? I don't think that's really possible. I mean, I think people might theoretically try to bracket out anything they've learned about the Bible, but nobody comes to the Bible with a blank slate. And if we did, we would be imposing some sort of theology ourselves anyway. And far better to be listening to the Scripture along with those who have listened to the Scripture in previous generations, to learn from them, and not to be scared of the thought that there is a theology that has been seen in Scripture before us and that we're trying to come into and understand. You seem to assume that the Bible has inherent in it a theology. Is that fair? Oh, my yes. Theology is speaking of God. It's truth about God. And the Bible claims to be, and I believe its claim, to be God disclosing himself to us. His identity, our identity, our fallenness and need, and his perfect plan for our redemption. That's all theology. There are people, though, who would have us think that the Bible really isn't inherently theological, and that anybody who finds a theology is imposing it. And then there are others who say, well, it's got this theology, or this author has this theology, that author has his own theology, and so we're between sort of competing visions of Scripture, one that says there are as many theologies as there are human authors, and the other that says, well, all theologies are artificial constructs imposed on Scripture. Both of those approaches really If they don't overtly deny that God is the primary author of Scripture, they at least kind of bracket it out and put it off to one side. Saying that God is the preeminent primary author of Scripture, that his intent in communicating himself, his plan, our need, is the preeminent unifier of Scripture, doesn't mean that we ignore the fact that there are differences within Scripture. Earlier Scriptures speak less explicitly, later Scriptures speak speak more explicitly of Christ and of his redemptive work. Different authors within the scriptures have slightly different camera angles on the truth, and uh, God uses them all to speak his word. But those other approaches that view scripture as either a collection of conflicting or competing theologies or simply as non-theological data basically are in some way disregarding not taking seriously the reality that Scripture claims to be God's speech about God's great works of creation and redemption. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
What if the listener is saying to himself, well, I don't know, theology is kind of scary, it's it's technical, it's foreign, it's you know not something that I work with on a regular basis. I can do a lot of things, you know, a listener is obviously has some technical ability because he's listening to a podcast, which requires a computer, an iPhone, or some sort of mobile device, something. And yet we find sometimes theology to be, as I say, sort of alien, strange, unfamiliar. Try to set his, her heart at rest about the utility of seeing theology in Scripture and letting it speak. I think I would say to a listener that finds the thought of theology very daunting, look at the way God does it in the Bible. Uh, He doesn't just throw out abstract propositions and reasonings. He embeds his revelation of himself in the story of his work, the history, the true history of his work in creation and redemption. And really, to read scripture in order to discover Christ in all the scriptures, to read it theologically, is simply to let him teach us through his work in people's lives, his commitment and covenant to his human servants and how that works out. And so, it's just being alert to the fact that God's talking to us in terms that we all resonate with, in terms of personal life and personal story, and God reveals himself in that way. So, theology is something that they're already doing. We are already doing it. We may not be doing it well or alertly, but we are already doing it. We're drawing conclusions from our own experience, but as we're reading the Bible, we're drawing conclusions about what God is like and what we're like from the various accounts that we read throughout the scriptures. Uh, The question is, are we drawing the conclusion that, that God wants us to draw as we read each text and each event in the big flow of his plan of redemption? So, theology is unavoidable. It's just a question of how you're going to do it. Are you going to do it the way that Scripture wants you to do it, or are you going to do it some other way? Exactly, right. One of the places where you begin in your book, the title of which is Walking with Jesus Through His Word, just out now, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. One of the passages that you begin with is Luke 24 beginning with verse 13, and it's the road to Emmaus. So, since this is one of these road passages where they're walking, and uh, we're learning to walk with Jesus through the Word, walk us through this passage. Well, it's a marvelous passage. It's the first of two in that last chapter of Luke's Gospel, where Jesus really opens up the Old Testament scriptures. And the scene in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus is two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. Emmaus is about seven miles, give or take, to the west of Jerusalem, and they're walking on resurrection morning. They don't know. Well, they heard a rumor that women heard angels say that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they're not so sure about that. So, they don't really know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they're walking and they're talking about how their hopes had been dashed, really, because uh, this Jesus, this great prophet, mighty in word and deed, whom they thought would be the one to redeem Israel, had been executed two days earlier at the instigation of the leaders of Judaism. And uh, now there's this rumor of his resurrection, but they don't really believe that. And uh, then a stranger, well, a stranger to them, not a stranger to us, the readers, because Luke tells us right off it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to say their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He joins them and he asks them what they're talking about and they share their heartbreak. And then, seemingly not very polite, 
almost out of the blue. He just says, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it not necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Not a great conversation starter. I don't think they're going to want to talk with him anymore, but that's okay. He doesn't expect them to talk. He starts to open up the scriptures to them, beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then the prophets. And in the Hebrew way of thinking about canon, that includes what we would think of as historical books, as well as the prophets that we think of like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and minor prophets. And he shows them in the scriptures the things concerning himself, obviously, especially focusing on his suffering and his subsequent exaltation, resurrection that had begun that day. And finally, they reach Emmaus. They invite him to come and stay with them, at least for dinner. And as they're at dinner, he takes the role of the host of the feast, of the dinner. It's rather odd. Again, he seems to be the guest, but no, he's the host. He breaks the bread, and when he breaks the bread, suddenly they know who it is. And then he disappears, one of his first recorded resurrection appearances. And they think back how their hearts were burning as he was opening the scriptures to them. They didn't know who he was yet, but they began to see the pattern through this, to them, anonymous Bible teacher seeing that the Messiah had to suffer first and enter into glory. Just as you were recounting the story, it never occurred to me till just now. You said they were walking for seven miles, and it takes about an hour to go about half that. So they were together for about two hours as they walked. I would think so, yeah. So just to put that in some context, so our Lord Jesus unfolds the history of salvation for two hours. And we obviously, we don't have but a sketch of what he said. We have indicators in Luke. Right. So in other right. words, you can read that whole narrative and it would take you, you know, just a few seconds. Right, exactly. But it was an in-depth study and, and leading them into who knows how many passages. I sometimes thought, wouldn't it be great if they'd been taking notes or you know, <laughs> yeah. turned on the recorder on their iPhone or something. Or later on in that same uh, narrative, when they returned to Jerusalem to report that they'd seen the risen Lord, then there have been other resurrection appearances that day. And then Jesus appears to the larger group, including the 11, with these two at least, and maybe others, and opens up the scripture yet again. Wouldn't it be great if Matthew, who would have been very articulate reading, writing, and so on as a tax collector, if he'd been taking notes on all that? Well, maybe he was. I don't know. But we don't have them. But we don't have them. But what we do have is the preaching in the book of Acts. And when you compare, and I have to do this with humility, okay, because I would have been as clueless. But when you compare the cluelessness of the disciples in the Gospels, when Jesus tells them over and over again that he's going to go to Jerusalem, not to be crowned and to expel the Romans, but to be rejected and to suffer and to die and then rise from the dead. Clueless. I would have been. But then you compare that, contrast that with what we see in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, and the fact that even before the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts 1, Peter is reading scripture in a new way. He's saying it was necessary for there be one of us to betray the Messiah. Listen to these Psalms. So he's already reading scripture in a new way. And of course, we have in the sermons of Acts, expositions of a number of texts of scripture. I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I think that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke might be leading us to think these are some of the passages that Jesus touched on in Luke 24 or in that 40-day period that began with his resurrection and concluded with his ascension. One of the other road passages that you reflect on is in Acts 8, beginning in verse 26, and it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Tell us about that. 
Well, that's so fascinating because this Philip is not the Philip who is one of the original 12 disciples. This Philip is one of the seven, along with Stephen and others who are appointed to care for the needs of the widows in Jerusalem. So he maybe was not present when Jesus was teaching, but he certainly has gotten the message through the apostles' teaching. And so when he hears this court official who had come from what Luke calls Ethiopia. That's not the nation state we think of. It was the Nubian state, which is in Sudan. But he's come from North Africa to Jerusalem, and he's returning now, and he has purchased a scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's reading aloud, as typically people did in the ancient world. And so Philip, as he's coming up on this man's coach, hears him reading aloud about the sufferings of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian official eunuch says, how can I understand? I need somebody to guide me. Is the prophet talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? And Luke simply records, beginning from that passage, Philip began to tell him the good news about Jesus. Wow. The good news about Jesus. So here, now, this way of reading scripture that Jesus imparted to the apostles has been caught by Philip through their teaching, and now Philip's passing it along to a convert from the pagan world, from the Gentile world, from Ethiopia. What's interesting, or one of the many interesting facets of that narrative, is that the Ethiopian eunuch asked the questions that scholars are still asking, right? People are still debating the identity of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 53. That's exactly right. Yeah. And we have a Holy Spirit-inspired answer as to the identity of that servant. Christians ought not doubt. We should not. And of course, this is not the only place in the inspired New Testament scriptures that Isaiah 53 is explicitly identified with the sufferings of Christ. Jesus did at the Last Supper. He said, this must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, as Luke records the conversation around the table. First Peter, Peter mentions uh, Isaiah 53 and other texts as well. So the Holy Spirit is quite consistent through various speakers and authors in the New Testament. This is about the Messiah Christ who would come to suffer and then enter into his glory. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. How can the average Bible reader learn to read Scripture with Jesus? That is a great question. And I think a lot of it has to do with really paying attention to reading our New Testament with a real attention to how the New Testament authors echo and point us back to Old Testament passages. In the book as a whole, as you've mentioned, I use kind of the metaphor of taking a journey, of walking. And I say, we're at a starting point and we have a destination in mind. And if we want to find the right route to that destination, sometimes explicit road signs will direct us there. Like on Southern California freeways, we know which exit to take and so on. That's sort of like the explicitly identified types in the Old Testament scripture that the New Testament says fulfilled in Christ. Adam was a type of the coming 
second Adam, Christ, Romans 5. Sometimes it's not so explicit. Sometimes it's more like well, I think of landmarks. Uh, I've been in a few places in the world where there are huge mountains towering over cities like Pikes Peak over Colorado Springs or Mount Kilimanjaro over the, the towns of northern Tanzania. That was great to see. Uh, it's a landmark. And I think of the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which are so embedded in the life of Israel in the Old Testament as God speaks his word to his people through prophets, as God establishes communion with his people through atonement, through the priests, and many other things the priests do. And then as God rules and defends his people through the kings, those are all previews that come to fulfillment in the climactic work of Jesus. And then the lay of the land is the most subtle in a certain sense, but it's the way you get the flow of the whole Bible. And that has to do with the fact that the idea of God's covenant relationship with his human servants undergirds it all. Uh, First in creation, as God establishes a covenant with Adam, even before sin has entered the picture, Adam fails, breaks the covenant. And then we have that first signal that there's going to be a new and better covenant, a gracious covenant, where God will send a faithful Adam uh, whose obedience will be credited to others. Genesis 3.15, that first gospel, he will uh, crush Satan's head. He himself will be wounded because he's going to suffer for us. So, getting that feel for things, by reading our New Testaments carefully. If we have a New Testament with cross-references in the margin or at the bottom of the page, you really need to pay attention to those where there's an Old Testament echo. And they're just beginning to look for these patterns. God, the covenant Lord, Christ coming as our covenant servant as well, prophet, priest, and king. And at a certain point, we might come to see that it was God the Son, perhaps, who was making himself known even before he became incarnate. Who was it? who walked with them in the cool of the day? Who was it who came to speak to them? And who made that covenant with Adam in the garden, which we call a covenant of nature, a covenant of works, a covenant of life? Who made that covenant who said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die? Right, exactly. I mean, God the Son, as we know from New Testament texts, is the Father's agent of creation. And so it makes perfect sense to say God the Son is the one who comes to, in some sense, visible to Adam and Eve to establish that initial covenant that obligates them to perfect obedience as well. And you have other passages as well. In John's Gospel, at one point, John quotes the vision given to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6. And John, recording words from that vision, says, Isaiah saw his glory, Christ's glory. He spoke of Christ. So, who revealed himself there, high and lifted up as the Lord who is holy, holy, holy in the sanctuary to Isaiah? It was the eternal son. So, when he came and was walking with them on the road to Emmaus and was explaining scripture and pointing out how it revealed him, he wasn't doing something artificial. He was bringing out of the text what was already there. We could even say he was bringing out of the text what he himself had put into the text through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the inspired, inerrant record of the Old Testament revelation of the events. Right, he was showing them how he was active in the Old Testament and helping them to see now the climax of his redemptive mission in his death and resurrection. So there's a difference between reading Jesus back into Scripture and refusing to read him out because he's already there. Right, and it's really hearing him read himself out of the Scripture that he's already given to us, both in his works and in the ancient words. Are there some wrong ways 
to find Jesus in Scripture. You tell the story of Spurgeon and the young preacher who preached, as Spurgeon said, a poor sermon, and the young preacher was bewildered. Why was it poor? Tell us that story. Ah, well, Spurgeon actually credits a Welsh preacher with telling this story, but yes, the old Welsh preacher whose appreciation and admiration the young preacher really wanted, who pronounced it a very poor sermon, didn't fault him for his exegesis or his illustration or his reasoning. Those were all fine, but he said there was no Christ in it. And the young preacher then said, well, there's no Christ in the text. I need to preach this text. And then the old preacher uses this analogy from every tiny hamlet and village throughout England, there is some path, road, high Highway that leads to London, the capital of the metropolis, as he calls it. So is scripture. There is always a road from every text to scripture, and your job is to find it. Then the old preacher went on to say, I've not yet found a text that didn't have a road, but if I did, I would make a road. And this is usually the part of Spurgeon's illustration that people quote. I will go over hedge and ditch to get to my Savior. I've got to get there. Now, that's a wonderful motivation. A few people have thought maybe Spurgeon did go over hedge and ditch now and then to get from a text to Jesus. (laughs) And we know that at other points, some of the early church fathers, with a pretty elaborate approach to allegory, would draw connections to every single possible detail of an Old Testament text to some detail that they knew more fully from New Testament revelation that you read it and you think, really? Did Moses expect his readers to even catch a glimpse of all this detail? So, we need to be careful. You know, we need to look at the big picture. We need to look at the themes of covenant, covenant lord and servant, prophet, priest, and king, and then not to let our imagination run absolutely wild in terms of every single detail. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. But if we pay attention to the text itself in its own context, I remember hearing a really marvelous sermon from Leviticus, and I remember thinking, I don't know how this is going to work, and being really struck by how carefully and patiently and faithfully the preacher led us from this relatively obscure passage about the ceremonial law in Leviticus to Christ And by the time we got there, it worked, and not because he had pulled a rabbit out of his hat and done something shocking and surprising and left us all wondering, well, how did he do that? By the end of the sermon, we knew how he had done that. He started with the text itself, and he paid attention to the original text, and he trusted that to lead us to London, as it were. Yes, and that's the way to do it, to really give careful, close attention to the text first in its closest context in terms of the history of how much God had spoken at this point, in terms of what we can see of the background of the people, and then, as you say, just the specifics of the text. That's got to be the starting point. But then we don't forget that that text in its close context, especially if we're thinking of an Old Testament text, is also part of a larger picture, a larger pattern, a larger true storyline that is leading to Christ. So, we show people clearly uh, with, and it's hard work, you know, we belabor with our guys who are studying preaching here, you really have to do your homework. This is not a quick, easy connect the dots, but you've got to wrestle with that text. But it's there. It's there. And that's an important point, right? It's not just connecting the dots. It's not a trick. It's the result of serious labor in the Word, in the original languages, in the original context, and then seeing how that unfolds in the history of salvation. So, it's not like every sermon sort of flattens out and becomes like every other sermon. In other words, the text isn't just an opportunity to go on a march through the history of redemption. So, today we're on a march from this text, and so that every sermon ends up like every other sermon. So, you want to try to account for what is particular about this text 
So we want to honor what that young man wanted to do, but we just want him to do a better job of it. Exactly, exactly. And we do want, obviously, at Westminster Seminary California, we strongly emphasize that pastors need to have the tools and the discipline to work from the original languages of Scripture. So they're dealing with the words as the Holy Spirit breathed them out. I've written this book because I'm hoping and expecting that even those who only have access to the Bible through faithful, clear translations in their own language, haven't studied Hebrew and Greek, can still learn, I think, to read Scripture for themselves and and to help their families and so on. They don't need to feel absolutely excluded by the inability to uh, come over here and study Greek with uh, Dr. Baugh or Hebrew with Professor Telfer or whatever. We're talking with Dennis Johnson about his new book, Walking with Jesus Through His Word. Everyone says that he's letting Scripture interpret Scripture. How do you know, how does one know when that process is really happening? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate a statement in the second Helvetic Confession, the second Swiss Confession, written by Heinrich Bullinger for the churches uh, in Switzerland and and, uh, Protestant Reformed churches in Switzerland. I think that confession, more than some of the others that we use, Three Forms or the Westminster Standards, actually takes a little time in the second chapter to unpack. What are we looking at? When we say Scripture and interpreting Scripture, we're looking at it in terms of its original setting, its situation. We're looking at like and unlike passages, many and sometimes different passages, clearer passages. And then we're looking at it in terms of its purpose to proclaim the gospel of grace and to lead us to love to God and others in response to that, to bring glory to God and to produce man's salvation. That's a big picture, but it's got all the elements, I think, right there. This is what we mean when we talk about letting Scripture interpret Scripture, attending to the words, attending to the circumstances, attending to the wider context of the whole Bible, passages that seem different initially, but we know if we understand them all, they're going to fit together somehow, so they give us a a more complementary view of things. And then promote God's purposes for Scripture, which is to lead us to faith and love, promote His glory and our salvation. So this is not purely an intellectual exercise. This is a spiritual exercise. That's exactly right. And, you know, to go back to Luke 24, it's very interesting that you have in those accounts, both on the road to Emmaus and later, you have the thought of Jesus opening up and interpreting Scripture. That could be viewed as purely intellectual. But it also talks about Jesus opening our hearts, opening their minds, opening their eyes. So it it's really is something that has to be pursued with prayer and dependence and humility and readiness to have God speak to us. It's not just applying a method. It's listening carefully to the voice of God in his word. And we do this interpretive work prayerfully and in reliance on the Holy Spirit. You, We went back to Luke 24, verse 31 says, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Right. And as you say, their hearts burned within them. Right. Who right. opened their eyes? The Holy Spirit, right? I mean, Jesus had said, even just a few evenings earlier, John records it in his gospel, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to take the things that belong to me and he's going to reveal them. Yeah, I can't speak everything to you right now. And of course, this is before the powerful descent of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but already only the Holy Spirit can give spiritual life or spiritual insight to dead hearts or to blind hearts. So, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit. We know he wasn't inactive before he came in power at Pentecost. He was very much active to draw people to life and faith. In Acts chapter 8, you see 
the power of the Holy Spirit operating through something very simple, something very basic. Man reading scripture out loud, teacher comes alongside in a marvelous way, but in that sort of marvelous context is a very sort of ordinary operation. And yet the Holy Spirit used that to do something which is miraculous, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That Ethiopian eunuch went from puzzled confusion over this text to understanding to pleading, really asking immediately to be identified as a follower of Jesus, as one trusting in Jesus through baptism, and Philip baptized him. And then he went on his way rejoicing there in Acts, and maybe one of the first messengers to bring the gospel of Christ to uh, the continent of Africa as he returned to his government position. Verse 35 of Acts 8 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Then, of course, he was baptized. So we have the gospel, and we have the sacrament of initiation into the visible covenant community. Exactly. So when we read scripture, we don't do it in isolation. We do it together. Isn't that part of the process of learning how to read scripture and seeing how all roads lead to London and how we grow and how we mature and that the Spirit uses to bring us to maturity? Absolutely. Absolutely true. In fact, if we were to look somewhat earlier in that same account, Philip had just come from Samaria, where he had also been used by God to preach the gospel, and many were baptized. But the importance of the Samaritans, because they were a bit on the edge of Judaism, of their really being recognized as followers of Jesus, is that the church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John. It's a community, and as Peter and John come, then the Holy Spirit gives evidence of the Samaritans' faith, and they're received by this wider community of the followers of Jesus. Why is it so important, as we bring this discussion to a close, why is it so important for Christians to learn to read the Bible the way that Jesus instructed those believers to read the Bible on the road to Emmaus? I would say it's important for several reasons. One is that the more we see the wholeness of the Bible, the way Jesus shows it to us in terms of that continuous agenda of God, that one plan of God worked out in history and climaxing in Him, one thing, it just moves us to marvel and to worship. We're astonished. Who but the sovereign God of the whole universe could have orchestrated all those events to make them previews of his son and then brought all of those not only prophetic words, but those foreshadowing events to that climax in Christ. So it moves us to worship. I think certainly helps us to see more that the critics that are constantly trying to pick at and divide the authors of Scripture, as we talked about earlier, divide the eras of Scripture and the various perspectives of Scripture, that we're, we're not less troubled by those criticisms because we see the unity. But I think that maybe the, the most wonderful thing is that as we see Christ in the Scriptures, as the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes to see, there's this process by which, as we observe and see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we are transformed into the same 
image, that it changes us, it conforms us more to the image of Christ as it builds our faith and our trust in Him. I'm thinking of Paul's discussion in 2 Corinthians 3 at the very end and into chapter 4, that the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Christ transforms from the inside out, even as Moses observing glory at Mount Sinai, but it was a glory that faded because the old covenant was designed to lead to the new. But now, as we see Christ in His Word, we're transformed. And it's an increasing glory, the the work of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily visible and glowing faces, but uh, our hearts are being transformed more into the image of Christ. That work of the Spirit to sanctify us goes on as he draws our hearts and our eyes on Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.